Hello, Canola Watchers, and welcome to the Canola Watch Podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. The topic today is fungicide IQ. It goes beyond the usual best practices when it comes to fungicide use and digs into some of the extra details that might improve results. My guest today is... My name is Mike Harding. I'm a plant pathologist, and I'm the crop assurance lead for Alberta Agriculture, Forestry, and Rural Economic Development. This podcast is based on a presentation called How Do I Increase My Fungicide IQ, which Mike presented at Alberta's Agronomy Update in January. I kick off with Mike's key message for those who only like to listen to the first two minutes of a podcast. Then I ask Mike a couple of ice-breaking questions, and then we crack on to the good stuff. Here's Mike's key message. Really, I think my message is for everyone involved in production and using fungicides is this question. Is there any way I could increase my fungicide IQ? That's really what I'm asking. And the reason for that is that as we increase our fungicide IQ, we can become more effective, more profitable disease management practitioners And we can also avoid some unwanted uh, or ineffective or non-sustainable uses of fungicides. Now a couple of icebreaking questions to get to know the person behind the agronomy message. I asked him first to describe his favorite place on the prairies. I'm a southern Alberta kid. I grew up um, in the south. Uh, And so really I think my go-to places that are my favorite that make me feel kind of at peace are some of the rivers that go through the semi-arid desert prairie regions and to be specific I guess Dinosaur Park on the Red Deer River and Writing on Stone on the Milk River are two of my all-time favorites. I haven't been down to the Milk River. I need to get down there because I've heard great things about riding on stone. But that Red Deer River around Drumheller, when you drop down off of the the escarpment, if you call it that, I guess it's dropping down into the valley. That is really spectacular. I can see why you like it, like it there. Yeah, I mean, I, I live in Brooks, which is only about 30 minutes from Dinosaur Park. And I go there with my kids on the regular. We love it there. All right. So on that note, um, what what things do you love to do that are, that aren't related to work? And maybe that's one of them. Yeah, just my work. That's it. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Um, I I love music, so I love to play music. I love to listen to music, and I love to sing, and I like movies and books. That all sounds great. What what instrument yeah. do you play? I mean, I love being I love being outside too. So I love my job because I get to be outside, and I love walking around the rivers in southern Alberta. And so outside stuff too. But yeah, okay, I, did... if I could just sit, if I could just sit and play my guitar all day, that would, I could do that for a lot of days in a row. Well, on a nice day, you could take your guitar outside and you could cover off both of those loves. <laughs> That's a great idea. Should we talk about fungicide IQ? Yeah. Okay. 
why did you feel you needed to make it make that presentation? That's a good question. Um, and the answer is that, so I have a couple of high school buddies who are producers. And every once in a while, they'll be out together, you know, some, some guys getting together, um, sharing, a, you know, having a beverage or having wings or whatever. And they'll get to talking about work stuff. And every once in a while, it'll be pathology related stuff. And so I'll end up getting a text or an instant message with a bunch of questions that came out at this, you know, they're at the coffee shop or at, you know, having wings or whatever. And so I, that's what happened. I got, I got a text from a friend of mine who said, who started asking me questions about fungicide half-life. And I realized that I, there was a lot of stuff about that. I didn't know. And that, and, and that kind of got me thinking about blind spots or, you know, things that we could learn about that would help us make good decisions with fungicides. And it ended up becoming sort of a, I guess what I'd call a fungicide IQ exercise. And, and after going through that myself, I thought, you know what, that was really helpful for me. I bet it'd be helpful for others as well. And so it became this talk about fungicide IQ. I want to get into the half-life uh, in a bit. But we're going to talk, we're going to kind of go through your presentation in sequence. And you had primary factors in getting the best results from a fungicide. You had secondary factors, and then you got into complicating factors, which is where we'll get into half-life. But, but let's let's start with the basics. What are the primary factors in getting the best results? Those primary factors that really drive fungicide use being effective and profitable are these. The first is making a good decision to spray or not. And that means that sometimes you'll make the decision to not spray, and that'll be the most profitable and most effective thing to do. And that's based on predicting risk in a very complicated system. So it's not an easy decision, but it is probably the most important one that's going to determine efficacy and, and profitability. <clears throat> then the second thing is, under those situations where you decide the risk is there and you're going to apply, you have to get it on during the, the, the there, there's an optimum timing. And so you have to be inside that window. And so timing becomes the second primary factor. And then the third one is you have to hit your target. And I had sort of three subheadings under hitting your target. The first is a correct diagnosis because if you're dealing with a virus issue or a bacterial disease, a fungicide isn't gonna help. And uh, the second is you need a product that is labeled to control the problem that you've got. And you also need to follow the label rate to make sure that you're going to um, uh, have efficacy. So making a decision to apply or not, getting it on at the right time, and then having a correct diagnosis with a correct product and a correct rate. Those, if you're doing those, those things, those primary factors, I think, you know, for the most part, we're going to be pretty good at, at being efficacious and profitable. Well, Mike, when I think about <clears throat> sclerotinia stem rod and canola, we could have a whole podcast just on number one of the primary factors on, you know, predicting risk and making an application decision, because that remains a big challenge. Uh, but we're not going to get into to that because we want to talk about some of this new stuff. 
Um, so I'll just say here that um, for farmers wanting more information on sclerotinia stem rot and, and seed or spray decisions, um, the canola encyclopedia at canolaencyclopedia.ca has excellent information on that. I can't ever really give anyone sort of hard, fast rules for what to do in every situation. There's so many, you know, I used to call it the art and science of fungicides where, you know, we have this information that's science-based that helps us, but it, there really is an art to knowing how and when to do certain things and can I do this and can I not do that? And they're very situational and they depend on all the context that's going into that decision-making. And so that's really where I wanted to go in this talk is once you understand these and are you doing these primary factors, there might still be some other things we can learn that'll help us in the you know unusual situations we can find ourselves in any given year and help us to make make decisions that are that are informed and educated. Well let's let's go on to the secondary factors. Um, so it's more about you know this this setting up the sprayer for for good results. Is that an art as well, or would you say this the secondary factors, which I'll get you to describe, is this more science? Is more on the science side? Yeah, it, it used to be more of an art, but we have so much more good information out there available to us now, even sometimes very specific to a single disease situation, as to you know what should my boom height be, what what should my water rate be, what kind of sprayer should I use, and how should it be angled. Uh, with respect to the vertical plane. And so all of these technological uh, aspects of getting your equipment or your technology to do the best job of hitting your target is what I call a secondary factor. So it's important stuff, but you know, if you change this, if you change your nozzles on your sprayer or tilt them a bit, it's not going to be. It's not going to have the same impact as the primary factors. It's going to have an, an effect, but it's not a primary effect. It's not going to have a massive difference. Um, I mean, if your sprayer is not calibrated well, or if your nozzles are blocked, that will have a pretty big effect because you're not hitting your target at all. But when we fine tune the technology, it can help us do a little better job of hitting the target. And and so these secondary factors can play a role. And this is, I think, where uh, probably a lot of people could increase their fungicide IQ by just doing a little bit of looking at what's the best technology uh, or settings or, you know, how do I calibrate my sprayer? All right, now this is where the, the meat of the presentation is. So we're going to finally get into the complicating factors. So you listed four of them, rain, fungicide insensitivity, inherent limitations of chemical compounds and different cultivar responses. And in the slide, you had the middle two bolded, which suggests I think that's where most of your talk was based on. Yeah, that's correct. So the complicating factors are things that can have a pretty significant effect on how well our fungicide applications work. Uh, but I didn't want to talk about the weather like things like rain or wind, because there's, we can't really do anything about that. It's just, it's just a complicating factor that we have to, if it's raining, we can't apply fungicides. Or if it's, you know, 100 kilometer an hour winds, we just don't apply them. 
So there isn't really anything to talk about with respect to weather, but I thought it was good to acknowledge. And this list of four, I'm sure it's not all inclusive. It's just the four that I thought were a good way to introduce the fact that there's these complicating factors. So weather was the first one, and and I'm not going to spend more time talking about that. And the fourth one was cultivar response. So some cultivars can respond a little different to fungicide applications. And there's been some work in many places, including Alberta, that's borne this out. But um, we, we probably don't know nearly as much yet about that as we need to, to make, I guess, um, a presentation or talk out of it. But I think it's important to understand that, that not every cultivar is going to respond the same. So that, that leaves the two in the middle, the fungicide insensitivity and the limitations of chemical compounds. And yes, that's where I, I've spent the rest of the time talking about, because there are some things that we can do to increase our fungicide IQ to help us, uh, I guess, keep some of these comp- those two complicating factors in check, or at least understand uh, how we can avoid um, stepping into a uh, I guess, a bad situation. What is fungicide insensitivity? Fungicide insensitivity is when the target fungus that we're trying to manage, so the pathogen of the crop, is no longer sensitive to the fungicide active ingredient. And the way that happens is that uh, every population that Um, can undergo sexual recombination, can shuffle the genetics around. And so you have a population that's not all clones. So you have the predominant population in the middle of the bell curve, and then you have oddballs at each end. So if you took height, for example, some people, uh, you know, the average height is probably around 5'10", I'm thinking. But you have some people that are 6'10", and you have some people that are 4'10". And so these people all exist in the population. Now, if there was a selection pressure that was placed onto the population where only the tall people could pass on their genetic information to the next generation, pretty soon our population would be closer to 6'10", than 4'10", or 3'10". And, and so the same thing happens in fields with fung, fungi that we apply fungicides to. So that's a selection event. But there are rare individuals in the population that are already insensitive to it. They just usually are not predominant. But when we apply that selection over multiple generations, those once rare types become predominant. And now when we apply a fungicide and nothing or or almost nothing is affected because the population has been selected. There's been a selection pressure that's led that population to become insensitive to the fungicide. Mike, can you give me an example of that happening? Yeah, so uh, just recently um, on the prairies, we have had reports of anthracnose on lentil becoming insensitive to the predominant fungicide that has been used to to manage it. Hmm. Anything in canola yet or any any concerns on the canola side of things? There's some work currently being done to evaluate fungicide sensitivity uh, for sclerotinia on the prairies, Um, but uh, we still don't yet 
have any evidence that there's a shift in any of our populations toward insensitivity. But it's a real risk, and it's something that we need to be looking at and taking real serious. Because for things like sclerotinia stem rod and canola, uh, we don't have very many other good options for managing that disease. So to lose fungicide sensitivity in a population would be make the disease really challenging to manage. It would basically be up to the weather to decide how much disease, and we'd no longer have a lot of control. In the presentation, you talk a bit about the differences in, in fungicide activity and, and the groups. What's what's the key message there again? Yeah, so um, that we're kind of moving there into that uh, these fungicides are chemical products and, and every um, compound has inherent characteristics that provide limitations to what it can't do, but also strengths for what it can do. So, you know, there's no perfect fungicide out there that's going to control everything all the time, but there's products that work well in this situation and are registered as a result, they're registered to be used in that situation. But they also have some limitations based on their chemistries. And I think one of the key ones to be, be aware of is that most of the fungicides, pretty much all the fungicides we use, we have to use them as preventative tools. In other words, that we can protect green tissue, but we don't cure existing infections. So once an infection reaches a certain point, which is shortly after ingression of the pathogen into the host tissues, the fungicides are no longer able to really control or manage. We have to apply them prior to the pathogen gaining entry to the host. And, and that kind of feeds back into why um, the primary factor, number one, making the decision to spray and getting it on at the right time. That's why that's so important because um, the fungicide has to be, um, you have to make a timely decision based on risk and then you have to get it on in time to intervene. Because if we wait too long, uh, those infections, can it can be too far gone to, so the, the, the fungicide can't really have much of an effect. This falls under the inherent limitations of chemical compounds as, as your major complicating factor. So where does the half-life come in, going back to your your friend's question to you. Yeah, so this this kind of was where I wanted to end up in this presentation because it was a blind spot for me and it, definitely a place where I um, really could increase my understanding of fungicides and, and how we could better use them. So half-life um, is the amount of time that lapses from 100% of the activity of the fungicide to 50% of the activity. So in other words, I apply the fungicide and at some number of hours or days later, only half of the activity or the fungicide is gonna be remaining. And that's due to things like uh, hydrolysis. So when we put things in water, sometimes they can dissolve or fall apart or, um, Sometimes when sun shines on them, the energy of that radiant sunlight will break molecules up. And so we call those things hydro hydrolysis and photolysis or photolysis. And there's other factors as well that are going to 
impact how long that chemical is going to remain where it, where we put it and remain intact and active. So things like um, adsorption, sometimes they get bound up and then they can't get away from whatever it is like so clay particles in the soil or organic material uh, sometimes the host plant will have enzymes that can cleave molecules to into pieces um, uh, animals and plants also have detoxification systems that are designed to break things up and excrete them bacteria and fungi and other microorganisms can also um, this biological activity that's either on plants or in the soil can break things down. And so these are all, once we apply a fungicide, I guess the clock is ticking, so to speak. In fact, once we mix it in water, uh, there's sometimes the clock is ticking uh, as to based on the half-life, and it's going to determine how long that product is going to remain active. It, the half-life is important for... For breakdown because we don't want these products building up in the environment so it is good that this breakdown occurs it's necessary but so what's the key message with regard to expectations in terms of crop protection like are there some products that have a half-life of, of hours or days yeah that's a great point jay that we don't want products that last forever or bioaccumulate and if there are products like that we don't register them for use anymore um so the fact that they break down in the environment or on plants that's a good thing but it means that we need to set some realistic expectations so i kind of went through an exercise where i pulled some information from regulatory bodies like the us epa or the pmra in canada because these are the organizations that measure these kinds of half-lives and, and the effect of photolysis or hydrolysis or um, other things. And so we looked at some of those values and found that, you know, most of these chemicals have half-lives that are uh, either, you know, dozens of days or even hundreds of days long. And so I posed the question, if you applied a fungicide, would you expect half of its activity to still be remaining 100 days later? And the answer is no, of course not. We, we know that fungicides don't last that long. So then why in these published regulatory documents do we see photolysis half-lives or hydrolysis half-lives of you know, 100 days or 800 days? And it's because these are done in the lab under very controlled conditions that allow people to do things like quality assurance and statistical comparisons of similar things. Really what we want to know is what's the dissipation of fungicides once we apply them. And so that's when I turned to a published paper that had been done by a group that was a consortium of researchers from the United States and from Europe. And they had about uh, 350 pesticides that they had. Um, it was a meta-analysis where they'd taken information from studies on plants that were either done in the field or in greenhouses that had measured the half-life. And so there was information for about 350 pesticides. And I pulled out the information for fungicides and put that into an Excel sheet and found a range between, so half-lives for fungicides ranged from say 24 days down to like one day. Uh, so that means once we apply them to the plant, half of the activity is there 
a day later for the short half-life or for the long ones, the acti- half the activity was still there 23 or 24 days later. But the mean was right around six days. And most of the products fell pretty close to within that mean. There were only, you know, say a handful of really short or really long half-lives. And so it was kind of at this point in the talk that I said, okay, let's, let's take a step back now and look at this information. We see that there's a mean half-life of six days. So what rules uh, can we sort of build based on that? And there really aren't any rules. We're not going to say you must always do this or you can't ever do that because each fungicide product or each chemical kind of has its own strengths and weaknesses. And so that's why we have to look at this on a case-by-case basis. And that's so when we're going to increase our fungicide IQ, we can't do it for every fungicide registered on every crop, we have to do it for the ones that we use routinely. And, and, and I think there are some things that are important for us to um, think about based on how we use them. And so for me, the question, two of the questions that I posed were, have you ever had some chemical or fungicide that you purchased but then didn't use, and so it was in storage for a year. And now you're wondering if in this, this next, the second year, can I still use it? Or I mixed up some fungicide in the sprayer tank, but then the wind picked up or it started to rain or whatever happened and I couldn't use it. And now it's just sitting in the yard. How long can it sit there in the tank before the activity is significantly reduced? So how would I answer those questions? Mike, I wanna I wanna answer those two questions right away, but I wanna go back just just to clarify something about half life. So say if the, the mean is six days, like you noted, um, does that mean after six days half of the molecules are still active and you can expect some some activity? Or once um once a fungicide is is degraded to to its first half life, is it doing anything at all anymore? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I would say that that again is going to depend on a lot of things. So sometimes you can have half of the chemical still there, but you could have more than half or less than half of the activity of the chemical there, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, that's exactly so what I was wondering. Be, yeah, it's going to be a little complicated, and it's going to depend on a lot of things. Like, is the sun uh, directly shining down onto the leaf, or is it a leaf that's shaded? Um, it's going to depend on how much moisture there is on the leaf. It's going to depend on how much biological activity, you know, how many epiphytes or other microorganisms are on the leaf and, and maybe having something to do with it. How fast does the fungicide move into or become uh, redistributed within the leaf or on top of the leaf? So, there's a lot of other factors that come into play, like solubility and hydrophilic versus lipophilic. And, you know, this is really where we're taking a deep dive into product chemistry and certainly into an area that I don't know enough about to be able to give you sort of concrete answers. But they probably vary depending on the compound and the conditions. I guess to me, the applied or take home message from what we're talking about here based on half life. Um, and, and whether that's the actual chemistry on the leaf or the activity on or in the leaf, 
I, I think to me, the applied message is we can't really expect more than, say, six to 12 or seven to 14 days of activity from a fungicide. I think expecting much more than that is unrealistic. And so if you're in a situation where you need to keep green tissue protected for more than 10 to 14 days, you may need to reapply. And then it gets even a little more complicated because you don't want to reapply the same fungicide group multiple times in the same growing season for the fungicide insensitivity risks that we talked about before. So now you need to start scheduling fungicide applications based on rotation of fungicide groups or at least tank mixing so that we don't um, create so much selection that we're asking for insensitivity. We, we've got a pretty good data set here from this paper that tells us that we're probably looking at on average a half-life of around six days. And as a result of that, after probably 10 days to two weeks, that fungicide isn't going to be really giving us much control after that right. point. Which is about the split uh, for, to use the sclerotinia stemrod example again, for those split applications, it's seven to 14 days, I think, the, the recommended intervals, which is right on track with what you just said. All right, let's talk about your, your two questions and then we can wrap up. Can I use last year's chemical? The big question. What do you say? Yeah, so really the best place to go looking for answers to these questions is the label and the safety data sheet. And so I took an, one example, and so this won't be the same for every fungicide, but here's uh, some information from a product label that says storage. Then it says store this product away from food or feed. That's for safety reasons. And then it says keep away from direct sunlight. Keep away from fire, open flame, or other sources of heat. That's another probably more safety than, than efficacy. And then it says, do not store below freezing. If stored for more than a year, shake well before using. Store in a tightly closed container and keep it in the original container. So if you stored it in a shaded area where the temperature didn't fluctuate, like it didn't get really hot or it didn't freeze, and it was in the original container with a tightly closed lid, then yeah, you can still use it. You just have to shake it really well before because it can. The, some of those compounds can separate out of solution, and so if you just put them in the sprayer tank, you might not be getting. Um, you might have a real problem if you don't agitate it before you before you use it, and and so that was to me the good news story of this question is yeah, most of the fungicides we have can be stored for a year or two. And in some situations, even longer, depending on, I mean, that's where you you might need to talk to the manufacturer to know if it's more than two years old. But yes, if you kept it out of the sunlight and didn't let it freeze, kept it in its original container with the lid tightly sealed, yes, you can. And this is all based, the stuff off the label is all based on the product chemistry work that's been done as part of developing the product and registering it. Yeah, because you're keeping it away from all those key factors in the half-life, which is the sunlight, the microbes, moisture, et cetera. So, okay, well, that's good news. Can, yeah. we, go to the, can we go to the next one, Mike? Yeah. About the, um, how long is it okay to keep in the sprayer tank? Yeah, so for this one, um, I mentioned in the talk that it's not that difficult to get your hands on detailed product chemistry information from regulatory agencies like 
US EPA. And so for one of the fungicides, I just pulled a regulatory document for it, and they had information on hydrolysis and pho photolysis. And so we looked specifically at that and saw that for the specific chemical we were looking at, um, the product is pretty stable um, at uh, environmentally relevant pHs and temperatures. So it, when once it's mixed with water. So when you mix it in the sprayer tank, hydrolysis isn't going to rapidly break it down. But, but what we saw that was different than that is that it says that the product was rapidly photodegraded to its primary breakdown product under favorable light conditions. So that raised a bit of a red flag that, you know, if, if you mix it up in the sprayer tank and it's just sitting in the sun for a day or two, am I going to have a whole bunch of photo degradation that's going to make the product less effective? And so when we looked a little closer at what that meant, um, we saw that it really was, uh, you know, we're talking about more like 10 days to two weeks that we would start to see a significant breakdown due to photolysis. So if it was parked in the shade over or, or parked overnight, this product wasn't going to have a significant decrease in activity. It was going to be just fine. And then if you had a, a black tank or a steel tank, that just helps, I suppose. That's right. Yeah. Now, so that was good news. But again, the key message is you can't assume that that's the case for every single chemical that you're going to apply. You, you have to increase your fungicide IQ for each herbicide, insecticide, fungicide, adjuvant, whatever it is you're using. Um, if you want to be able to really answer some of these questions, you have to understand this. And, and to kind of make that point, the last slide of my presentation showed the effect of pH on a number of um, pesticides. And I pulled out two of the fungicides and showed that one of them was stable over a wide range of pH. And so that product, you know, you can mix it up and you don't have to worry about the pH of the water and, and it'll store fine in that water for a long period of time. But the second product, the half-life in pH 8 was 10 minutes. So if you're, if you're using a product that has a really, really reduced half-life in a different pH or at a higher temperature or in sunlight, you have to be aware of that because some of them do have these inherent limitations. And again, that's not to say that this fungicide is a bad product. It's not. It's just that every chemical has its own characteristics, strengths and weaknesses. And if we're not aware of them, we could kind of get ourselves caught. So in other words, if I'm using alkaline water to mix up this and then I leave it in the tank overnight, it's it's not going to work the next day because the half-life is 10 minutes. So, oh, that's really, now, that's really important. There aren't very many products like that. So again, the primary factors of fungicide use are really where we live. But there are occasionally these complicating factors that if we're not aware of, um, we can have occasions where our fungicides don't perform the way we expect them to. Again, not because they're bad. It's just because there's some limitations that we didn't understand and we got caught. So that's the point is, you know, if you're, if let's say there's three or four fungicides that I'm using on my farm unit 
really routinely, it's probably worth my while to either have myself or my trusted agronomist or whoever it is that's making some of these fungicide decisions um, aware of a lot of these um, sort of inherent strengths and weaknesses of each so that under some of these situations where we might have some leftover product or some stuff in the tank that we didn't use, uh, what kind of an effect is that going to have on the ability to to get the correct response out of the fungicide? That's that's great advice, Mike. And I like I was going to ask you about that suggestion, and you made it without any prompting at all. But you know, identify the the few fungicides that you use fairly regularly, and and do some research. So on this this half life information is that on the SDS sheets? Um. Th- Usually not. That's usually regulatory information. Um, and so it'd probably be more likely to find it on a regulatory evaluation document. Um, and, and those aren't that hard to find on the internet. But, you know, if I was a producer, so I ended my talk by saying, look, I get it, that there's some people who just aren't interested in fungicide chemistry, or I don't have time. I'd like to increase my fungicide IQ, but I got bigger fish to fry. Um, and, and that's great. But don't forget that there are a lot of people that might even be in your network that know this stuff. So you don't have to necessarily learn it yourself, but you just need to plug into, you know, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's an agronomist, maybe it's a retailer. And for sure, the manufacturers of these fungicides, they know this stuff. And so, it, you know, it, where possible, plug into people who know uh, the answers to these questions or can help give you bits of information that will help you make good decisions. We, you, you can't expect other people to make these decisions for you, but you can certainly plug into a network of people that can provide information that will help you make sound information-based decisions. There's so many things to know about pesticide application and fungicides, obviously. And I mean, last year we learned about heat and its effect on efficacy and and realized that there's some products that just don't work that well in heat. And I know this this is not what we're talking about today, Mike, but it's, it really underlines the importance of fungicide IQ. And I really like your comment uh, that uh, we, we're not all going to know everything, but lean on people who might know a little bit more than we do. Would that be your closing key key message or what what if we if we wrap up with your key thought what would that be yeah i think that's it and and the way i'd frame it is what can i do to increase my fungicide iq and then that's up for to each individual to answer some people might want to geek out and really learn product chemistry and some people want to just say you know what maybe i need to make a relation better relationship with my retailer or the manufacturer someone in someone in the company that makes this stuff or who or whatever But how can I, that's the key message, how can I increase my fungicide IQ? Thank you again to Mike Harding, Crop Health Assurance Lead with Alberta Agriculture, Forestry and Rural Economic Development. That's great, Mike. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. That was a pleasure. Are you going to send me a picture of you with your guitar on a a hoodoo? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. For lots more on canola disease management, please check out the diseases chapter at canolaencyclopedia.ca. To sign up to receive our timely Canola Watch emails, which will also have disease management agronomy tips, 
find the sign-up form at canolawatch.org. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. I'm Jay Wetter. Thanks for listening.